0: See, making much of Jesus is an overflow of our time with Jesus because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that empowered ordinary, unschooled individuals like James and John is the same spirit that empowers you and me today. Well, we are uh,
1: continuing this morning through the book of Acts, and so I'm going to invite my friend K2 uh, to come on up, and he's going to read from Acts this morning. Uh, K2 and his family are just an active part of this community, but what I love about K2 is that he's also someone who takes, uh, he, he didn't know I was going to say any of this, that's the look on his face right there, uh, but he takes discipleship very seriously. I, I love the way in which what God has given to him, he just wants to pour out into others, and it's an example that I'm encouraged by anytime we get together. So K2 is going to read for us, and so if you would stand with us, I'll get out of the way.
2: Thank you. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 4, and I'll be reading verses... 1 through 22. Give you a moment to turn there if you want to follow along. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, the word of God says And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, rather than to God, you must judge. for we cannot speak but what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because of the people. for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. That's the end. <laughs> you may be seated.
1: Well, we have uh, an exciting passage to look at, but what I'm excited about as well is that this morning, uh, you get to hear from one of my very best friends. Uh, pastor Steve Dang is joining us this morning. He he currently serves as a teaching pastor at Calvary Church in Los Gatos, and he and I did a number of years of ministry together and have partnered in a lot of different things, but he is uh, a voice that I'm excited for you to hear from because he just loves Jesus, and it oozes out in him and everything he does, and anyone who counts him as friend is loved well, and it's one of the things I'm very grateful for in my life. Um, but if you would help me, uh, by welcoming Steve Dang on up here my friend and soon to be yours
0: thanks man i am so excited to be here this morning thank you for that incredible reading by the way it was amazing But I've been saying this all morning, but I've been saying, you know, you guys look exactly like you do on TV. Uh, I've been uh, following you guys along, your incredible worship team, uh, but I feel like I have heard so much about you because, man, Andrew and Rachel, they love you guys. And whenever they get us together, like, we pray for you guys, and so there is a church in Los Gatos and a few pastors who are just praying for your church. And so in a lot of ways, this feels a little bit like meeting your best friend's extended family. So I am uh, so glad that I can be here and be with you guys and while We really miss Andrew and Rachel um, in the Bay Area. We are so happy for their call call here, and I'm so glad to be with you guys this morning. Uh, My family is here. Uh, We drove up from San Jose this morning, and thankfully, because of uh, daylight savings, you know, that drive at 5 a.m. felt like 6, so they agreed to do this. This is my wife, uh, Kate. Uh, My oldest daughter, Evangeline, just turned eight last week, and my daughter, Felicity, turned five just a month ago. So my uh, Wajian family there, as we like to call ourselves. And uh, we're just, again, they're going to be excited. They're going to be here the next service, but they were just so excited to see the West family all over again. But uh, this morning, we are continuing in the book of Acts. Now, one of the misnomers about the book of Acts is we call it the Acts of the Apostles. But the book of Acts isn't so much about the Acts of the Apostles, but really it's about what Jesus is doing through his spirit in and through the life of the apostles, and that this is an important distinction because what we see as Acts opens up, as the gospel writer Luke writes also the book of Acts, is he says that this is actually a continuation of what Jesus began to do and teach, if you guys go back to Acts chapter 1, which is to tell us that what Jesus began to do and teach is now continuing on through the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Now the reason why this is an important distinction for us is because when we think about the book of Acts, we think, you know what, the book of Acts is only for extraordinary individuals, right? It's about the apostles, the people who show up in stained glass windows, you have the halos over their heads, and we tend to distance ourselves from that and say, you know what, gosh, that was really amazing that God did that way back then, but does he do something like that here and now? I can get that God uses extraordinary individuals. This is for AP Christians. I'm just in regular Christianity. What is this all about? But it's important to remember that now what we are seeing in the book of Acts is actually how the Holy Spirit empowers ordinary people like you and me. Because it's actually the exact opposite of what we tend to think that how God moves and who God chooses to work through. Because the book of Acts is a story of an extraordinary God who does incredible acts through ordinary people. And it again points us back to this truth that what God began to do in and through Jesus continues to be done in and through ordinary people like you and I today, amen? Amen. Now, Andrew gave me the sermon title for today, which is Making Much of Jesus, and I had to laugh because it, I'm sure if you've been on staff, you've heard them say this. You probably have heard them say this here, but this is something that Andrew and Rachel have actually been living out since Andrew had hair, okay? Okay. And his entire life, in every area that he goes to, whether it was in school or anything, he was like, I just want to make much of Jesus. And now that he's taking this over here, I get so excited because, man, can you imagine what it would be like to just make much of Jesus in our culture that needs it so bad today? And so we are going to be picking up the story today in Acts chapter 4. Last week, Pastor Dane did an incredible job unpacking Acts chapter 3 for us. And it's kind of important for us to kind of keep a finger back in Acts chapter 3 because what we see in Acts chapter 3 is that for the very first time, the message of the gospel begins to meet a little bit of opposition. And kind of like when we send our kids off to school for the first time, you're like, how is they going to do? Like, what are they going to do with opposition? How are they going to deal when they hit hard times? This is kind of what the gospel is going through for the very first time. How are the first disciples going to respond under pressure, under uncertainty, and under fear? And it's here in the public arena that we find whether or not the teachings of Jesus are just good ideas, or is it life-changing good news? Are the things that Jesus teaches, like loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, are those just good sentiment, but they're ultimately impractical or unrealistic in today's culture, or is it actually something that is possible through the Holy Spirit? Because we would be absolutely correct that things like loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you would be completely impractical and completely unrealistic if Jesus, Jesus hadn't been risen from the dead. They would, would be absolutely correct if it wasn't possible because of the resurrection and what Jesus did on the cross. And so, what we see in the first century church is how their experience of a resurrected Jesus changed both the per- trajectory and the purpose of their very lives. That it even shaped how they viewed their own neighbor. So that even under the threat of persecution, they were filled with love. Under the weight of accusation, they were filled with empathy. In the face of death, they held firm to the hope of eternity, because the truth of the resurrection meant that they could make much of Jesus in all circumstances. And is that not a relevant message for us today, in a world when we can make so much of everything else that we are reminded, first and foremost, to make much of Jesus And so today, we're going to explore what the first century church clung on to, regardless of their circumstance, regardless of the uncertainty, regardless of their fear, that the resurrection is still true, that Christ is still king, and the local church will continue to share in their ancient mission to share the good news of Jesus and embody the truth of God's kingdom and pray for his coming again. Amen? All right, so let's go back to Acts chapter 3 just for a quick second. When we go back to Acts chapter 3, we meet Peter and John who go to the temple at 3 p.m., which is a time of prayer, not a coincidence, and they come to the gate that is called Beautiful where a lame man had been begging for 40 years. Now, this is an important detail because this lame man wasn't like a plant that Peter and John put in the crowd and be like, hey, I want you to pretend like you're lame, and then when I say get up and walk, you're going to get up and walk. Everybody knew who this man was. And so Peter responds in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And the man gets up and he walks in the temple and thousands upon thousands begin to follow Jesus, but Peter and John are arrested, which is kind of strange because why would they be arrested for healing a man? And Peter and John now are all of a sudden taken to the Sanhedrin, which is like going to the Jewish Supreme Court, which is the highest court of Jewish law, the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin worked in step with the Romans because they were like, look, as long as you keep the peace, as long as you keep order, you will have our backing. You keep Rome happy and we'll do whatever you want. But Peter and John begin to proclaim this incredible message, which I can sum up only this way. Jesus was the author of life. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. Now say you're sorry. <laughs> so in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, now all of a sudden they're greatly disturbed. Because the apostles were teaching the people and they were proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. And I love uh, the translation, I believe you, did you read from the ESV? Uh, From the ESV says that they were greatly annoyed, which is actually the proper translation of that text. That they were greatly annoyed, not just because of what they were teaching, but because their teaching had authority. I love that it's a very visceral feeling. Have you ever been greatly annoyed before? Or maybe you've gone to work and you, you worked hard, you, you built the business, all of a sudden a new guy comes in or a new woman comes in and everyone's like, wow, they're amazing, right? And you're like, whoa, 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 I've been here the whole time. So this is what, exactly what they're feeling. You see, to the Sadducees, authority was built on title. Unlike the Pharisees, which anybody could become, as long as you could follow all of their strict laws, you could be a Pharisee. But to a Sadducee, you had to be born into it. You see, you came from a family of the high priesthood, from the days of David and Solomon. You were the descendants of Zadok. You were the Zadokses. Get it? See, when you were born into something, and especially when that place of high, uh, that you were born into gave you high standing, it gives you a sense of elitism, doesn't it? You think, yeah, I'm born into this. Like, I, I deserve this. My whole family is built on this. We built this city on rock and roll. They were educated at the finest schools. They had a strong lobbying influence in Rome. They were used to their voice being heard. But here in Acts 3 and 4, Peter and John just roll up. And all of a sudden, they're preaching with authority. They didn't have a degree. They didn't have a job title. They didn't carry business cards. They didn't have the backing of an entire empire. But why did they have this power? Acts tells us that the power came from God's spirit, and so this is what made them so annoyed at their message. The other thing about, we have to know about the Sadducees is that they believed that the only thing that was authoritative was the five first books of the Bible, which is the Torah. And so the basis of their argument and the, the, their, their authority always came down to what does the Torah say, which would be really annoying for you to ever have to make any kind of argument with the Sadducees, right? Because they would just go back and be like, well, what does the Torah say? Well, what does the Torah say? And because the Torah doesn't specifically mention resurrection, they didn't believe in it. But what does it say that Peter and John came to talk about? They talked about the resurrection of Jesus. And so now there is a decision that has to be made. Here are a bunch of guys. We say, we've been saying all along that we don't believe in resurrection, but these guys all of a sudden are claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. No one can find the body. And now all of a sudden, these guys are preaching with his kind of authority. So what's actually happening here? Do we we, or do we not believe in resurrection? So either Jesus is true or they're using some really complicated magic tricks. And so they call him out then, Peter and John in verse 11. They begin quoting from Psalm 118. that says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, the reason why this is really important is because this is actually based off Jewish legend, and it's the kind of legend that has a moral to the story. Like, have you guys heard of that little story, The Boy Who Cried Wolf, right? Everyone knows what the moral of that story is all about. And so let me tell you the moral of the story of something that, a story that every Jew would have known, which is about the cornerstone. The legend goes like this. When Solomon built his temple... They would go and they would send the dimensions of the precise stones that they needed to the quarry, and the quarry would take those dimensions and they would cut it out to the exact shape and size. And so if you guys are familiar with the cornerstone, the cornerstone became the foundational stone or the setting stone in which all other stones would be referenced. And so if the first stone was off, the rest of the building would be off. If there was something wrong with the very first cornerstone, then everything else would be thrown off as well because the cornerstone determined the entire structure. And so one day, a stone arrived, a cornerstone arrived that seemed a little bit odd. And they said, you know what, this doesn't seem to fit. It wasn't what they expected. They didn't think that they needed it. So they rejected it and they threw it down the Kidron Valley. And when they got to the very end of the project, they started noticing that, man, this building is not fitting correctly, that there's something off with the temple. And they realized that the cornerstone that they actually needed was lying at the very bottom of the Kidron Valley. I'd hate to be the person who has to carry all that back up. But everyone knew the moral of the story. Have you ever thrown something away that you didn't think fit and later on realized that you needed it? Has anyone ever built Ikea furniture? And you're like, what's this piece? I don't need it. And you throw it away. And then later on, you're like, I needed that little bolt, right? So this is the moral that everyone would have really noted. Now, it's interesting to note that the temple, as we know, was built on Mount Moriah. So if you guys ever go to Israel, Andrew and I have gotten the lead tours there. And, you know, we have Mount Moriah, and then it's surrounded by three valleys, okay? And the three valleys are the Kidron Valley, the Tyropian Valley, and the Hinnom Valley. So from your side, just hold like three fingers, and you can see the valley, okay? Kidron, Tyropian, Hinnom Valley, Now, there is a famous picture that if you go to Israel, you need to go and do. So, oh, wait, look, there's a picture of Andrew and I. This probably cost us $50 from some guy. who's like, just put it on. Now give me $50, okay? But this is a famous photo you guys have probably seen. You can kind of see the golden dome kind of in between our weird headscarf thing right there. And from where we're standing, we are standing on the Mount of Olives. Now, there is a huge valley that you can't necessarily see right in front of us. If you're looking at the golden dome where the Temple Mount is, if you're looking down, that would be the Kidron Valley. Now, some interesting things to note about the Kidron Valley is this, is that the Kidron Valley was actually the place in the book of First and Second Kings that the Israelites would cast their idols when they turned back to God. So when the Israelites would turn back to God, they're like, let's throw our idols away and let's toss it in the Kidron Valley. And so it became synonymous with the place that you would toss things that you thought were useless. But then there was another interesting part of the story. You see, according to Messianic prophecy, it was believed that the Messiah would actually come up from the Kidron Valley. And so we see all of these layers kind of coming together in some ordinary people, in Peter and John. Because Jesus didn't fit their expectations of the Messiah, they rejected him. And now all of a sudden, they're realizing that he was actually the correct cornerstone in which we build our lives, and so Peter, in very subtle ways, is saying, you are just like the idiots who toss a stone down the valley when all of a sudden you realize that you needed it. And the moral, I think, is so relevant to us today. Whatever we call the cornerstone of our life ends up shaping the rest of the building. And isn't it easy to build the cornerstone on our life on everything else on our finances, on our job, on our career, and even on our politics, but it ends up being what shapes the rest of your life. And so here the Sadducees are annoyed on two fronts. First, how are these fishermen from the backwoods, from Morgan Hill, how are they able to speak with such authority? How do they know so much about scripture when they didn't study it as much as we did? And now they're also proclaiming the resurrection? Well, Scripture makes clear that the reason why this is only possible is because it's by the Holy Spirit. Because when you look at Acts 3 and 4, the Spirit is going to be the key to understanding the why and the how our Christian ancestors were able to make much of Jesus in every single circumstance. And so this morning, I just want to frame up our conversation with three observations. The first observation is that the Spirit establishes the transference of authority from Jesus to the disciples. The second observation that we're gonna see is that the Spirit testifies to the authority that we, as believers, have in Jesus' name. And the third observation from this passage is that we see how the Spirit empowers ordinary people like Peter and John and you and me to accomplish what God wants to be done in this world, and that is for the good news of his son Jesus to expand. And so let's look at the very first observation. The first observation is that we see how the Spirit establishes the transference of authority now, we have to go back to Acts chapter 3, verse 6, in order to grab a hold of this, because what Peter says to the man, if you guys remember, it says, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And so the question is if Jesus didn't impart riches to his disciples, what did he impart? Well, he imparted his own authority. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. And now here's where it's transferred. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is directly connected back to Jesus because at minimum, everyone heard rumors that Jesus could do this kind of thing. They knew that Jesus can heal the lame. They knew that he can heal and do incredible miracles. But now all of a sudden, his disciples have the same authority to do what Jesus did. And the reason why we hear this, like, again, like the reason why this transference of authority is so important is because this is something that Jesus promised because if you go back to John chapter 16, verses, or chapters, uh, verses 1 through 15, one of the things that Jesus talks about is that he has to ascend back to heaven so that the Holy Spirit can come and give the disciples authority. And so we see it right here, right away, this is the fulfillment of all of this happening. But something else is amazing that's happening here, and I have to nerd out just a little bit, so just bear with me. And I have to show you guys a map, okay? So there's a map of the temple, as we kind of see here. The Holy of Holies is about to be uh, highlighted. I think if you click on over to the next thing right there, the Holy of Holies, right? Like this was uh, where people go to encounter God. That was where the presence of God was associated in this spot. And even then, it was limited to one man, the high priest, who could go there once a year. But I want you to look at where this miracle actually happens, because this miracle happens at the beautiful gate. And so you see this on the outside, and what Luke is kind of painting a picture of, as you kind of continue on, is that God's spirit is literally on the move, that God's spirit is no longer confined to that tiny space, but now his love and his peace and his presence is available to everyone who needs it everywhere. And how is it going to happen? It happens now through his people, through you and me. God's spirit cannot be confined because now God's spirit is residing in every single person who has placed their trust in Jesus. And this is what we see throughout Acts 3 and 4. That what, may, what, what Acts 3 and 4 makes clear is that all the things that Peter and John are doing is not by their own power. And so in verse 12 of, of Acts chapter 3, one of the things that uh, Peter says that I think is amazing, he says, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness that we made this man walk? This is an incredible thing that's being said here because at a time when Peter could have easily made much of himself, he had the opportunity, he had the platform, he had the power, he could have built an entire following, he could have healed this man, and he could have said, you know what, don't forget, to like and subscribe and hit that notification bell so you don't miss any of my other teachings. But he doesn't. He chooses in this moment to point back to Jesus, to make much of Jesus. And so we see that the spirit begins to transfer all of this authority and that this is what makes this healing possible. And it's a spirit that that takes two men who just a few chapters earlier were trying to cower, were cowering in hope, hoping uh, hoping that they wouldn't be associated with Jesus. But now all of a sudden, they're proclaiming Jesus with courage and with boldness in front of the very court that Jesus stood before he went to the cross. You see, it was this transfer of authority by the Spirit that their boldness, in their boldness, that they were able to testify. Again, Jesus promised them that that the Spirit would do in and through them, through John chapter 15, that when they come to the court, that they don't have to worry because the Spirit will testify on his behalf. And so what they see in the Sanhedrin, what the court demands in Acts chapter four is they continue to go back and they ask this question, which I think they already know the answer to, but they ask him, by what power And what name did you do this? And for Peter and John, there is only one name that they can boldly proclaim, and that is the name of Jesus. And the only reason why they were able to do this is because the Spirit empowered them to do this, which tells us the second observation. The second observation is that the Spirit testifies through the authority of Jesus's name. Now, if we go back to Matthew 28, remember, Jesus imparts authority in his name. And throughout Acts 3 and 4, we're gonna continue to see these references to his name. So in Acts 3, 16... By faith, in the name of Jesus, this man is made strong. It is Jesus' name, that faith, uh, uh, name, and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed this man. In uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, when they're being questioned by the Sanhedrin, they ask him, by what name did you do this? In uh, verse 10, they respond by saying, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. And then when they begin to proclaim again, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind which we must be saved. And then in verse 17 and 18, the Sanhedrin began to warn them to no longer uh, teach in Jesus' name. So you begin to see kind of a theme here that there's something about the name of Jesus that gives authority, but that people want to silence. And we, this is something we experience all the time, right? Because today when we talk about Jesus, it's either a curse word or it's something that tells everyone else around us that the prayer is now over, right? Whenever we say, in Jesus' name, amen, hand squeeze, this prayer is over, okay? We all know what's going on here. But isn't it true that what we see today is that the name of Jesus is also incredibly divisive? People will say to me all the time, hey, you could talk about spirituality all you want. You could talk about faith all you want, but the second you mention Jesus' name, they're like, whoa, why are you getting so fanatical? You see, there's something about Jesus' name that it either builds your life or it splits it. But the best way to actually think about this idea of authority in Jesus' name is actually what happens when an officer says, stop in the name of the law. Because when the officer says stop in the name of the law, is it because there's some kind of magical power to, that, to those words? No. Right? Like there's nothing magical that happens. It doesn't all of a sudden create this force field and stop everyone in its place. But what this officer is doing is that he or she is invoking the full weight and the authority of a nation or people that he or she represents. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we are literally invoking the full authority of our king and the kingdom of God. And so Paul says it this way. He says that we are actually citizens of heaven. We are citizens of that kingdom. And therefore, we have been given the right to invoke the authority of the king. And so for all of us, who pray in Jesus' name, amen. The prayer is not just over. We are saying by the authority that we have in our king and the kingdom that we represent, this is why and how we're praying all of this with confidence. And the last observation that we see is that the spirit empowers ordinary people. Again, this is again emphasized throughout Acts, but we see this in, verse four, in chapter four, verse eight. It's only when Peter and John are filled with the spirit that they begin to speak. And it's this emphasis that's not based on their own skill or their own talent or their own ability to articulate the incredible truths, but it's an authority that comes from Jesus' name. And just in case we miss it, Luke is incredible in his writing of this, but just in case he misses it, he says, look, look at what the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees describe uh, Peter, and John, uh, Peter and, and John as in verse 13. They said, that when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, and they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They took notice that they were unschooled. Now, the Greek word for this word unschooled is the word "agrammatoi," which is where we get the word grammar school, right? They were uneducated. And the second word is that what I want to take notice of is the word ordinary. Now, I want you to turn to your neighbor, if you have a neighbor, and say, you're so ordinary. (laughs) And you should turn back and say to them, how dare you? Because the word ordinary is the word idiotai, which is where we get the word idiot. So if you've ever been found yourself kind of thinking, man, I'm surrounded by idiots. It's true, you're surrounded by ordinary people right here. Now, this isn't a judgment on their intellect, but it's the fact that they weren't professional religious people, especially when they were compared to the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees. But this tells us of what God can do that is so amazing about God's spirit in the lives of regular believers like you and me, that sometimes we make up the excuse that we think, you know what, the only people that God can use are people who are AP Christians, the people who went to seminary, the people who have the degrees, the people who have a nameplate on their door, the people who have the business cards that say pastor. And I hear this all the time. They say, well, you know what, I can't do that. That's something you can do because I am not a pastor. But the good news is that God does not care about your job title. He cares about your willingness. And so let me share with you just one cool story that God is doing in the midst of COVID. Um, Andrew and I at, our, at our, my church currently, where his former church used to be, we actually uh, support juvenile hall chaplains. And I think Andrew has actually gone to juvenile hall with me. But one of the incredible things is when you go to juvenile hall, it's an intense experience to see 12-year-olds like, you know, who are like in handcuffs, tattooed, all of this. And during COVID, chaplains are not allowed to go inside juvenile hall right now. But here's what God's been doing. All of a sudden, these juvenile hall uh, inmates, 12, 13, 14 years old, have decided that they are going to take it upon themselves now to begin leading Bible studies themselves. And what's been incredible is that they began baptizing kids, one another, in their own sinks And they're doing this all on their own. Do they have degrees? Do they have chaplains? No. But when God's Spirit fills us up, it does incredible things. And so, whenever you think, I don't have a degree, I don't have a business card, you can get rid of that because that is a lie from hell. God's Spirit has filled you up. And if God can use juvenile inmates, kids, 12 and 13 years old who have been defined by the mistakes that they made in their life, and now all of a sudden in Christ they have a new life, then I can guarantee you that God wants to use you. And so verse 16 through 28, this is the part that's so incredible because despite all of this ordeal, despite everything that they've gone through, the Sanhedrin could not discredit their integrity, they could not defame their character, they could not dismiss their love as anything but genuine. And so they commanded them, don't speak in Jesus' name any longer. But I love what Peter and John come back and they say. They said they could not help but make much of Jesus. And it's an incredible story because they easily at this point could have gotten back to the Sanhedrin. They had thousands of followers. Have you guys ever met people who had just come to Christ, how passionate they are? Could you imagine the kind of uprising that they could have stirred up They could have overthrown the Sanhedrin. In fact, people have tried before in the past. But what they cared most about was not overthrowing a corrupt system or a corrupt Sanhedrin. What they cared about was even their hearts. They cared most about making much of Jesus. And so in verse 20, this is what they say. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. This is the truth that has shaped the entire 1st and 2nd century church to the point where Aristides of Athens in the 2nd century would write to give testimony on the conduct of Christians to the Emperor Hadrian, and this is what he would write. He wrote this, the Christians, O king, as we have learned from their writing, show kindness to those near them, and whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. And their oppressors, they comfort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. They deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother." And if there is any among them that say that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they will fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Every morning and every hour, they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness towards them. And for their food and their drink, they, give and they offer thanksgiving to him. Assuredly, the race of Christians is more blessed than all the men who are upon the face of the earth. Now I can't think of a more critical time for us today to remember in the turmoil of an election week, in the chaos of a pandemic, when there is so much that we can make much of, to remember that the resurrection is still true, that Christ is still king, and the local church shares in the mission of our ancient Christian ancestors to proclaim the good news of Jesus and live out the principles of God's kingdom and to always pray for his coming again. Because when we make much of Jesus... Much like that cornerstone, it will determine the purpose of our lives. It will dominate the focus of our thoughts. It will dominate even what we post and how we love our neighbor. And I think, very practically, today is the season where politics has dominated your mind, maybe not your mind, you know, maybe you're more holy than I am, and you think about other things. But I think about my friend who uh, worked for the Bush White House, W. Bush. He's a conservative, and he told me about his time when he was in D.C., and he said that when he was in D.C., he was attending this church, and every single weekend, he would go to church, and there was this woman who would greet him, who would smile, who gave him so much joy, and they would hug every single weekend when they came into the service, and he loved sitting next to this woman because of all the joy in which she worshipped, and she worshipped with passion, and then one day, after about a year, he realized that she actually worked for the other aisle. And he said that the Holy Spirit convicted him so much in this moment. And it was this question, do I love my party more than I love God's people? And it was something that struck him to the core. And in this conversation, he said something that I will never forget. He said this, he says, I believe America is the greatest country in the history of the world. But my patriotism should always pale in comparison to my faith. And as I think about his words, I found find myself convicted because I can fill that blank in with anything. Does the pursuit of my career pale in comparison to my faith? Does my job title pair in comparison to my faith? Does my influence, my family, my wealth, my savings account, does it pair pale in comparison to my faith? Jesus said it this way: He says, Whatever it is that we treasure, there are hearts. Will be. In other words, whatever we make much of dominates the focus of our lives. And so how do we begin to do this? How do we begin to make much of Jesus? Well, the first thing is that making much of Jesus is an overflow, not an obligation. If there's any part of you right now that feels like, whoa, like this is about convictions, like all this, it's not here to make you feel guilty. This is all about. What God's love does in us and through us and how it overflows from us, grace and mercy and peace, is not something we work towards, it's something that we embrace and allow it to overflow. As, John, as Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. So abide, which comes from this word abode, which means to make your home in, make your home in me and I and you will bear much fruit. You see, the truth is that it's not about you trying harder, it's about you abiding more. And one of my favorite lines in this entire chapter, in Acts chapter 4, comes from verse 13. It says that they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. In our culture, people can demean us, they can reject us, they can legislate laws against our values. But at the end of the day, do people take note that I had been with Jesus? Jesus says in Matthew 18:20, "Where two or three are gathered in My name, there am I with them." So here we are. It's been a long time since I preached against people, like like towards people, right? <laughs> At least in Santa Clara County. But here we are gathered. More than two or three are gathered in His name, and He is with us. But when we leave from this place, when we leave from our small groups, when we leave from 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 coffee with another person, and we gather in His name, six feet apart, whatever that is. Do people recognize that we had been with Jesus? And so here's my question as we leave and as we think about our times together. When I leave church or any kind of gathering, prayer time, small group, would people recognize I had been with Jesus? Is joy reflected in my life after worship? Is peace evident in my life after prayer? Does love and grace abound on my Facebook and in the parking lot after church? Throughout this season, one of the things I found myself saying over and over again is that there has never been a more practical time for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in this season, while Santa Clara County, which is where we come from, is not meeting, I ask myself, do my neighbors recognize that I had been with Jesus? Do the people that I encounter at Trader Joe's, do they recognize that I had been with Jesus? See, making much of Jesus is an overflow of our time with Jesus because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that empowered ordinary, unschooled individuals like James and John is the same spirit that empowers you and me today. And if this is true, then we can make much of Jesus where we live, work, and play. That introducing people to Jesus is not just something that we just bring people here to this church, but everywhere we go. And so in Acts 4.23, which is, I know is outside of the bounds of what we read today, it says that on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, when it says that they went back to their own people, that word is idiuses, multiple idiots. <laughs> they went back to their ordinary communities. They went back to their ordinary jobs. They went back to their ordinary neighborhoods, but now they had an incredible testimony. Acts is highlighting that God's spirit can turn ordinary merchants, ordinary baristas, ordinary real estate agents, accountants, officers, soldiers, students, to become incredible representatives of Jesus everywhere. And you don't have to have the right answers. You just have to be willing and open for God to use it. So let me close real quickly with a story. Uh, I have a friend named Mark. I'm a part of a motorcycle club, not like the club that kind of like shanks people, kind of like Sons of Anarchy (laughs) kind of thing, right? But I'm part of this motorcycle club, and there was this guy who was part of the motorcycle club who found out I was a pastor, and he was like this staunch atheist, and so he would troll me all day long on Facebook. And I would lead uh, tours for our high school seniors when I was a high school pastor, down to go visit all the Christian uh, colleges down in Southern California. And he would just troll me online, be like, this is a waste of time, you're, you're brainwashing the kids. And I was like, bro, like, listen, all right? first of all, people read this, okay? Like, you can't just like, swear on my page, I have to delete this. And I remember that every single time he would come with some article about this or that, and, 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 he, and because I wasn't responding the way that he wanted to, it began this dialogue. And so a few years ago, uh, I got diagnosed with cancer, and I was at Stanford, and I had to get surgery done, and cancer treatment, and uh, this guy named Mark, who uh, actually his name on Facebook was just Bullet Tooth, tells you everything you need to know, and, um, and he actually ended up showing up in the hospital, and for two hours, and I'm like open and hurting, but I'm like, okay, God, I guess I'll got to share Jesus For two hours, me and Bullet Tooth talked about Jesus. And then after that, I didn't hear anything from him. He just disappeared. Randomly, next, uh, last year, he gave me a call. And he's like, hey man, do you remember me? I'm like, I'm not sure I can ever forget you. <laughs> he's like, the reason why you haven't heard from me is because I've been in prison. I was like, oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> and he says, I want you to know that I gave my life to Jesus. Within this past year, during COVID, he bought and now he owns his own motorcycle repair shop. In fact, my motorcycle is being repaired at his shop right now. But I love his story because it's not about having all the right answers and even the people who are the most resistant to our message, the people who think that we're dumb for believing what we believe, it's not up to you to have the right answers. It's up to the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. And you never know the years and the months that it will take for God's spirit to soften a hardened heart enough for him to be, or any, of that, any person to begin to accept his word. And so I want to encourage you because some of you guys have family members that you've been praying for for years. People at work that you've been praying for for years. People at school that you've been praying for months and years and you're like, God, why won't they just wake up? Your call is just to be faithful. Your call is just to trust that God will work, because who knows? One day, hopefully you don't get the call that I just got out of prison, but you know, you know what I mean. But hopefully one day you get the call and says, you know what, I just gave my life to Jesus. And you can celebrate that you didn't give up when it could have been easily to do so. And so here's the question, where does God have you? Where does God have you? Where you live, work, and play. And how can you make much of Jesus? Will you pray with me? Father God, I am so thankful that you use ordinary idiots. <laughs> you use ordinary idiots like me, people who don't say the right things all the time, we don't have all the skills and all the talents, and you remind us that it's not up to us anyway. That it's only by your spirit which empowers us, which gives us authority that we are able to do the things that you call us to do, and the most important thing to you is to make much of Jesus everywhere that we are. And so in a season of incredible turmoil, in a season where it's so easy to make much of everything else, God, will you remind us by your spirit to make much of you? God, may we pray before we post. May we pray before we vote. And God, may you remind us that the most important thing we can build our life on is on your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in the name and the authority of Jesus. Amen. Amen.